Hey fam, welcome back. I'm so excited because right now Skincare Anarchy is just climbing and doing so well because of all of you and I am so humbled. Our whole team is so excited these days. We definitely have that pep in our step because of you guys and I can't thank you enough for having helped us hit over 30,000 downloads per week. I mean, wow, I'm so stoked. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Um, we recently got published um, in Spine Beauty Today. Thank you to Kamala Kirk and Lizzie Pike for um, honoring me so much with that feature and for honoring the show. It's just such a such a blessing um, to have had that amazing um, you know, opportunity. But also, we had the immense, immense honor of being in CEW, which I know you guys checked out that article. Um, I'm here also right now to tell you guys that we have a really exciting, um, I guess, new release or project coming up, but it requires all of you to go sign up for our email list. If you go to our Instagram, which is at Skincare Anarchy, and you go into the bio and the link in our bio and click on the link tree link, it will give you um, a way to enter your email address and sign up for our email list. The reason I'm telling you this is because we're about to put together a very cool surprise that's going to give you a huge discount almost on every single brand that we have interviewed here. And this is only exclusively for our email list listeners. If you guys love all of the brands that we host and you really want to check a lot a lot of them out at a discount and get all of those great presents and gifts and self-care presents ready for the holidays coming up, you know, they're going to be here quicker than you realize, um, definitely sign up. I think you guys are going to love what we put together and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Wait till I show you guys what we're rolling out with at the end of the year, early next year. I mean, I think this is going to be the coolest next step for us and I know you're going to love it. So again, sign up for our email list, link in bio on Instagram at Skincare Anarchy. That's our tag. Check it out. And I can't wait for you guys to see what we have in store. But for now, stay tuned. This episode with Jan is definitely, I think, one of my favorites so far. I mean, every episode with her is phenomenal, but this one's going to be really, really great. So check it out and let me know what you think. And again, thank you so much for helping us hit that 30,000 a week of downloads. Let's keep going. Let's keep climbing. Um, I love it. And if there's an, ever any brand or anybody you guys want me to interview, do not hesitate to reach out. For real. Anyone. I mean, I will reach out to anyone that you guys are interested in. So um, leave us a voice message, however you want to contact us, but let us know. All right, guys. Thank you so much. This is our third episode for the masterclass with the one and only Jan Marini. And I'm super excited because this one is going to be focused on skincare myths. So welcome back to the show, Jan. I'm so excited. We're doing another episode for this class. Yeah, thank you. This is a fun subject. Yes. No, I'm so excited. I want to learn about all the 
the myths out there. I know there are a lot of them and we hear about them all the time, especially from TikTok and all the influencers. So um, let's dive in and, um, you know, I can just, I guess, start with the first one. So I know that in summertime, everyone is really, really cautious about their skin, right? And they don't want to be using products like actives and stuff. But I want to ask you, what about retinol? Can we use retinol in the summertime? That is one of the biggest misconceptions out there. You absolutely can. And you know, so many times people want to stop their retinoids in the summertime. And I always, I always say, I always answer a question with a question. So I usually say to people, so why do you think you can't wear your retinoid in the summertime? And the answer I get 90% of the time is, well, it's going to make me sun sensitive. And sun sensitivity is a whole different issue. Retinoids do not make you sun sensitive. Sun sensitivity is where there's a chemical reaction with UV light. So for example, you know, when you, when you prescribe tetracycline, doesn't it say on there, you have to be careful about sunlight or doxycycline or any of those, you know, a lot of those antibiotics. Well, I've had this happen to me many years ago. You can be wearing the best sunscreen and you go outside in the sun when you're taking an the one of those antibiotics and you can burn to a crisp. I ended up in the emergency room. So oh, it can be a severe burn. That is not what happens with the retinoid. And as a matter of fact, there was actually a study done where they highly retinized skin. And then they put it outside. You know, if you use a retinoid in the beginning before you acclimate, you can kind of, your skin can sometimes get red or it can get peely depending on the, the retinoid. So I put this person out in the sun and let them burn to a crisp. And the skin that is retinoid, retinized actually heals faster and has less damage, less damage to the DNA than skin that burns without a retinoid. Wow. So you want to not... wear your retinoid. You want to wear it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I didn't, I had no idea. And that makes sense, right? With the salt turnover. I mean, that's, that's really, really interesting. Okay. So retinols are okay good to go for the summer that's really good to know yes you don't want to get all that damage in your skin then you're kind of behind the eight ball then in september you start using it again and now you're you have you've got a lot to make up for so just keep using it okay well that's yeah that's definitely something i didn't know so i'm glad that we clarified that um so what about acne now how is sun involved with acne because i know a lot of people who have acne are very you know they're very cautious they don't want to do anything to like you know just i guess ex exacerbate it and also it's very painful i think too sometimes so what about sun does sun help acne it doesn't it actually makes it worse now it's understandable how people could think that it's going to make your acne better because here's what happens. So acne starts in the follicle. And when you're in the sun, what it does is it sort of hardens the outside of the skin, the stratum corneum, and it starts, you know, you start to get a tan. That's the response to the sun. And it's in a, in a way it's kind of, it's a type of damage. So when that stratum corneum gets a little harder, what it does is suppresses the processes that are going on in the follicle. So you've got all these dead cells and the oil and the C. acne bacteria, et cetera. And it's, it's suppressing it. And when, when you get out of the sun, so you think your skin is better, then September comes along and you get out of the sun and teenagers go back to school and all of a sudden they have this terrible breakout. Well, you assume I must be breaking up because I'm not in the sun. 
what it is is once the stratum corneum actually softens, then you have this sort of giant eruption and it was brewing down there all the time. You're actually making it worse. And not only that, um, you know, you, you, this, this includes tanning beds. And yeah. tanning beds emit 12 times more light than natural sunlight. So both of them are, are really, really bad for your skin and horribly damaging. And it actually makes acne worse. Wow. That's, I, I had no idea. I mean, it's honestly like, I know with tanning beds, like, you know, being a millennial myself, it was like, everyone was going to the tanning bed. And I remember thinking like, you know, a lot of the girls that had like the really dark tans, I was like, you know, they never had acne, but it was like, I just, I just wondered like, what is going on with your skin underneath the surface, you know, cause you're the, you know, you're the yeah. color of of darker me in the in the summertime so yeah that's that's really interesting um now speaking of acne i know there's a lot of home remedies which i'm sure you know and you've seen them you know people making these mistakes all the time um one of the biggest ones i've seen is toothpaste and so (laughs) what about that can you put toothpaste on a zit and will that help that is like an urban legend that just persists and persists no matter what it's like it's like a cockroach it just won't die so, so first of all, acne starts in the follicle. So once you have an acne lesion, that's the end of the process. And you can, you know, you could put a little ice on it to make it less red. You could put some cortisone on it. Maybe you could um, put some benzoyl peroxide on it. It might make the inflammation go away a little faster, but that's the end of the process. You're pretty much stuck with it. And there's absolutely nothing in toothpaste that is going to help an acne lesion. As a matter of fact, the majority of toothpaste have fluoride and fluoride actually can be an exacerbating or a causative factor for acne. And sometimes when people have acne, this kind of perioral, it's sort of in the corners of their mouth or down in the area that's going down toward the chin. Sometimes that can be one of the causative factors can be fluoride. Now, for example, if I go to the dentist, after I get yeah. my teeth clean, they always want me to do a fluoride rinse. And I have on my chart, do not give me a fluoride rinse because even though I never, ever break out, I will get a big old zit with the fluoride rinse. Wow. Wow. Now, that's really interesting. When so you what stick are- toothpaste on a zit, you know, yeah. probably what happens is, is it, it dries and it may absorb some of the fluid making you think that somehow it's going to dry that lesion out faster, but it's actually just going to make it worse. Wow. That's, that's so interesting. I didn't know that about Florida. And that makes me actually think of like, you know, it's kind of off topic. It makes me think of like hard water and soft water. If you, if you know what I mean, like just how that, if that, you know, uh, plays into it at all, because I know fluoride in some countries is used in the water. So that's interesting. That's yeah, a very interesting. It is. Yeah. And I don't know if there's a study that's been done on that, but it possibly could play into it if there's fluoride in the water, if it's fluorinated. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Now, what about, okay. So the next one, so, you know, we understand toothpaste. Now, what about chocolate? Cause I know, I mean, I love chocolate. So <laughs> <should> <laughs> I, I mean, what about chocolate and acne? I mean, is it going to be causing me to break out or is it okay? Okay. Chocolate itself. This is the good news. 
does not exacerbate acne. Is that actually a really great antioxidant? Um, you know, flavonoid, it's dark. It probably has a lot of anti-inflammatory characteristics. It's the sugar, okay? Yeah. So they've done lots and lots of studies um, in terms of trying to determine if, if chocolate plays a role. But it's, it's really sugar. And um, it, sugar is inflammatory. Acne is an inflammatory disorder. And so we know that when you have a diet that is high, and by the way, it's also one other thing. If you're, if you're eating milk chocolate, um, it could be the milk. So there's a couple of things that about diet that exacerbate acne. So one is milk. We know that milk actually causes acne. This is not my speculation. This is an actual study that was done on 47,000 nurses repeated on their sons and daughters and done on 3,000 teenage boys and 3,000 teenage girls. And it's because we actually milk cows when they're pregnant. I mean, that's how you, you get milk. And if a cow is in the wild and it gets pregnant, it pushes the calf away. So when it's pregnant, it's producing steroidal hormones. So it doesn't really matter where you buy your milk, whether it's at you know, Safeway or whether it's at Whole Foods and it's organic. It's the fact that the cow is pregnant when we milk it. So this plays a major role. The second thing that plays a role, which has to do with sort of the sugar issue, and that is the glycemic load. So we know what the glycemic index is, right? You know, you look at a candy bar and you say, that's got sugar in it, high glycemic index. Glycemic load is how your liver processes the food and how much glucose is going in every cell in your body. So glucose is very, very inflammatory. But when you're eating a high carb diet, that's total carbs. Let's say, you know, let's say you have a great pasta dinner and garlic bread, and maybe you have some dessert. Over time, as your insulin levels kind of spike, what happens in many individuals is that we actually produce more testosterone to take those levels down. And so what happens is that it's kind of, it, it, it can translate into, um, particularly for female, adult females in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond, acne is an epidemic. And so it translates into that acne that you see perioral jawline, it's really stubborn. And you see it on so many females, and it's so difficult to address. Wow, so, that's so interesting. Yeah, not chocolate itself, but you know, in a lot of countries, yeah. you know, chocolate is used in cooking, right? But it's not. Yeah as a sweet you wouldn't even you probably doesn't even taste like chocolate you literally read my mind jan i was thinking about like the cocoa aspect mm-hmm. of it you know what i mean i was like well exactly. what you know because yeah because like a lot of people use like dark chocolate and dark chocolate isn't you know if you or if you get cocoa just cocoa powder like that's chocolate you know it's not it's just not sugar like you said or, like or, it's cocaia now you know yeah. i've tried this i'm like you i i love chocolate and I've tried eating the, you know, 87%, 90% chocolate. Just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> I, I wish it did because I know. it's actually, you know, it's actually probably good for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, it, it's actually a lot of studies have been done on the, on the antioxidant properties. I'm sure you know all about those, but yeah, I'm with you 100%. I can't, you know, if I'm on, if I'm trying to eat some chocolate. I'm going to go eat some chocolate. 
But yeah, a lot I mean, of- <laughs> I mean, it's like, it, it, it's more like if, if it's like 95, 90% or whatever, even 72% is really hard. It's kind of like it's medicine. Yes, yes, exactly. Yep. Now, you know, I, I actually want to ask you, I want to shift focus a little bit because um, I know last time we spoke um, about rosacea and that was such an amazing, amazing episode. And to learn from you, I actually recently published a paper, it just came out on rosacea and eczema and, and I'm really curious to learn more about it. Um, what about, I, you know, I, a lot of people have actually reached out since that episode, by the way, I, I was meaning to tell you and asked about, um, you know, just their own story, but I'm curious about glycolic acids and retinoids when it comes to rosacea. Can we use them? Can we not use them? Um, what is, you know, what's the answer to that? In general, you absolutely can use them. And now this is a really complex issue because if you did a paper on rosacea, you know that rosacea is such a complex, multifaceted disease. And we still, there's a lot of mystery surrounding rosacea. We still don't fully understand it. And also, we don't even, you know, sometimes it's speculated, could, possibly could it be autoimmune? Does it have other, you know, um, aspects of it that we don't fully understand? But in general, rosacea is not a disease of sensitivity. It's a disease of reactivity. So mm-hmm. you can have really sensitive skin and not have rosacea. You can have rosacea, but not be particularly sensitive. And it's reactivity towards certain triggers. And those triggers are different for different people. But in general, it could be alcohol. It could be spicy food. It could be caffeine. It could be chocolate. It could be some people, it's weird. It's berries, avocados, it's sitting in a stuffy room, not getting enough rest. All those kinds of things can kind of be a trigger for rosacea. And it's also a disease of vasomotor instability. So the blood vessels, there's instability there. They're supposed to expand and contract, expand and contract. They're compromised. So what we believe is kind of the under one of the underpinnings or underlying factors of rosacea primary factor is something called the kisilicidin protein. Mm-hmm. Now this is an inflammatory protein, but it's actually a good protein because it's used and we use it to, to, to heal our wounds and things like that. But if it's somehow being triggered for no apparent reason, this is where you get the flushing and blushing and some of the characteristics associated with rosacea. So, what I'm getting to bottom line is, is that you want to use things that downregulate those inflammatory pathways. You want to use a lot of anti um, or uh, anti-inflammatories. Glycolic is a major anti-inflammatory. And mm. not only that, but a study that was done by two female derms who each head up the Department of Dermatology at two different universities determined what they did is they took two groups of patients, started them off on 20% glycolic acid home care, which is pretty aggressive, started doing pills on them two weeks later in every single case. They were able to halt the progression of the disease. They were able to gain control and to um, eliminate the secondary lesions that associated with that can look like acne. And they also were able to decrease the appearance of the telangiectasia. Um, And it's speculated that if the demodexamide is involved in rosacea, and that's never been proven completely, um, that it can keep it from colonizing in the follicle or attaching itself to the follicle. And so, and retinoids are another gold standard for rosacea. Again, we're not quite sure how they affect rosacea, 
But we know, I, I like to add rose, kind of retinoids in once the rosacea kind of gets more consistent or stabilized. Now, mm-hmm. um, and we do that with a product called BioClear, which is glycolic salicylic and azelaic acid. And azelaic acid is sold by prescription for rosacea. Um, but once we kind of get it so that it's a little bit more stable, then adding a retinoid in can really help to decrease a lot of the characteristics associated with rosacea, including that people, as they progress down the rosacea road, they get sort of an orange peel-like skin, sebaceous glands enlarge, and so it can make a huge difference on the skin texture and just the overall um, keeping the skin kind of uh, stable and, and looking more like you don't have rosacea. Yeah. And a lot well, younger looking too. Yeah. No, I mean, that's something that's very important for us to, I mean, for anyone listening that has rosacea, I mean, this is really important because I know that a lot of people, when they have something like rosacea, they're like, absolutely stop everything. I can't use any skincare. I can't put anything on my skin that's going to irritate it. But that's a very interesting, um, you know, amount of information because that's, you know, for me, that's what I see the most consumers doing. They're either going to use too much of a product or too much of skincare in general, or, or they'll use nothing, you know? And so finding that balance, um, I think that's really, really important, especially when you have something like rosacea or, or eczema. So yeah, exactly. And I think also that there's a tendency because people want to categorize it as sensitive skin to use things that, you know, we associated we associate with using unsensitive skin, like somehow botanicals or these so-called very gentle ingredients. And we don't have receptor sites in our skin for botanicals. Botanicals sometimes can be very irritating or very, uh, they can trigger inflammatory responses. And there are a lot of other ingredients that you might think would be a a more gentle, so-called gentle ingredient for somebody that has rosacea, but it's not going to actually assist in being able to address these causative factors. Right, right. That's, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, um, that actually leads me to uh, the next question because, um, you know, you speak about botanicals and I think, you know, people have a lot of, I guess, especially with the way the industry is now, they have a lot of, I guess, ideas that we can't put certain things in certain amounts on our skin. And I think oil is one of the things that is now emerging. A lot of companies are talking about oil-based products. Um, I've interviewed a lot of brands that are, you know, talking about oils as like the Holy Grail. Um, Now I really want to know from you in terms of just using oil or the natural oil our skin is producing, does that help with anti-aging or keeping us young? How does the oil really play a part with skin health? I'm going to say in general, no. (laughs) I know everybody, you know, and there's a lot of things about essential oils. Let's start with essential oils because that's sort of a big category. Now, for example, let's take some place like India where essential oils are huge. Essential oils are actually looked at as being medicinal and people sometimes go to school for years and years and years to really work with essential oils. So it's something that we just look at here as a, kind of a fluffy cosmetic ingredient. And for one thing, it, get, it can get very complex. If essential oils are extracted through a cold pressed method, it's different than extracting them with the solvent. And sometimes when you use solvents, it can actually cause that essential oil to be very acneogenic. A lot of people don't mm-hmm. know that. 
So there's a lot of things about essential oils that you may not know in using a product. Plus, um, keep in mind that there are some essential oils that can actually be comedogenic. They can actually be acogenic. But finally, when it comes to skin aging, when we talk about the skin being really just plump and soft and radiant and having lots of moisture and looking just really refined and glowing, um, that has a lot to do with two things. One, the outside of your skin, the stratum corneum, is a dead layer, and those cells should be in a very organized fashion. They should lay like shingles on a roof or fish scales. Right. And in between those cells, you have a lot of hygroscopic substances, mucopolysaccharides, ceramides, phospholipids, hyaluronic acid. And those substances are what gives the skin, helps to hold in water, gives the skin barrier function, allowing us to respond appropriately under different weather conditions. So whether it's, you know, humid or whether it's dry or cold, that our skin responds appropriately instead of being red and inflamed. And it just gives the skin volume so that it's again, nice and plump. Now, what Mm -hmm. happens is you get to your, you know, you get into your more catabolic state, you reach the age of 20 and you're kind of fully cooked. And all that sun damage that you've had growing up over the years um, starts to show up. And one of the things that can happen is that stratum corneum starts to get very disorganized. And Mm. there's an actual, there's a medical term for it called increased corneocyte cohesion. Those cells can kind of harden and cornify and your skin can Mm. actually feel dry and it's not really dry and can actually look coarser and it can pile up around your follicle openings. And then also you're not producing as much of these glycosaminoglycans. Yeah, so you don't have the same barrier function. That's very uh, interesting. Yeah. So, so it, what you want to do is you want to increase those substances. And, you know, sometimes people that have really oily skin, they actually have more inflammation and more trans- epidermal moisture loss. So oil is not what is going to keep you young. So it's going to be having a nice, thin pack, compact stratum corneum, very organized and having lots of those hygroscopic substances that hold water in the skin. And finally, there is another aspect of that, and it's the dermis, which is 80% collagen is having a really thick, robust dermis. And you can have put all the essential oil on your skin that you want and all the various oils. And you're going to start losing at the age of 20, about one to 2% or so collagen per year, more with sun exposure and the sun exposure you've had in your past and your diet and your lifestyle. So you get into your 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond, you could lose as much as 50, 60, 70% of your dermis. Wow. Two oil isn't going to help you with that. It's really things like retinoids and actually things like glycolic acid stimulates that glycolic acid is actually categorized technically as a moisturizer because what it does is it creates more of these glycosaminoglycans in the skin so there's various substances that we can put on their skin that actually can truly make this huge difference in these areas but it's then that's not to say that there aren't some essential oils out there that might not be helpful but that's not the the panacea yeah wow that's so interesting and you know i love what you said about the glycolic and and helping it 
or using it and then eventually your skin allows for this increase in hydration ability and you know i've been thinking about that a lot especially with signaling and i think this is where consumers i wish they would catch up to this idea of molecular signaling in our skin and what that really does at the end of the day compared to just put everything on top of it you know and you're going to wake up tomorrow with perfect skin like i just i never understand that concept but what you're saying makes so much sense because there are so many pathways right in the skin and we we really have been overlooking that i feel like as an industry um you know there's so much um debate and controversy and talk about that products have to absorb, and you hear this in all the ads, that it, they absorb, they absorb. The fact is, is that you have receptor sites on every single cell. Yeah. And it's about connecting with those receptor sites because I can actually, um, for example, with transferring growth factor beta one, which Dr. Weedo of Jefferson University determined, um, simulates a type of collagen that you don't produce after the age of 30. And he was quoted as saying, this is just a thing to keep the skin young indefinitely. Well, I don't have to get that into your bloodstream or into your dermis. I just have to connect with receptor sites. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really an area that's misunderstood. And of course, consumers are being constantly being fed information that sounds like it's so technical and so scientific. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's pseudoscience. That's what I call it. Pseudoscience. Because honestly, you know, what you just said about the, the receptors, it's like this lock and key mechanism, you know, the human body is just so complex and you have to have the right key to unlock the right thing, which is going to lead to a whole cascade of events that your body has to undergo to create things like collagen and normal proteins that we use. So this is a concept that I feel like consumers, yeah, they're definitely being manipulated by some companies because they, you know, they don't explain the whole story. So it's exactly. And, you know, and peptides are another area that are really an interesting, fascinating area where we barely scratch the surface. I mean, I, I look at skin aging as like a 25,000 piece puzzle, and maybe we've been able to address one corner of it. And yeah. peptides are emerging because we're, we, we haven't even begun to, to uncover the vast um, ability of what peptides eventually will be able to do. But at the simplest level, a lot of peptides that we see in skincare actually fool your skin into thinking it's wounded. And so what do you do when your skin is wounded? You produce a lot more collagen. Yeah. Yeah. But you also uh, make a lot more cytokines and inflammatory molecules, right? So that's, it's like a double-edged sword, I feel like. It is, but you can actually, and that's just where Peptides are now starting to get refined because we have peptides, for example, in Rosalie that downregulate that pathway for kisilicidin for uh, rosacea. We have a peptide that actually, um, for the first time that we use in our Luminate, which actually downregulates the melanocyte stimulating hormone, which plays a role genetically into how you're going to personally react in the sun. Why do you go outside? You know, somebody goes outside for five minutes and or sits in a hot car and they start pigmenting and other people don't. So um, again, that's why it's just, it's so amazing what we're going to be able to do and how we're able to manipulate some of these, um, these, these processes. Absolutely. No, absolutely. That's a very fascinating topic. And I, you know, I completely agree with you that, you know, dermatology and I think skin as an organ 
Um, no kidding. You know, Jan, when I look at it, I, I always look at skin as the equivalent to kind of how much we know about the brain. You know how they say we don't even <laughs> know like 10% about what our brain is doing and how it's doing it? Well, I feel like the same thing with the skin. It's one of the most complex organs that we are dealing yes. with in the medical community. Yeah. So exactly. And, you know, I always say when you talk about penetration, if you could really get everything to penetrate through the skin, you'd drown in the bathtub. Yeah. People don't understand. You don't want you don't want everything to penetrate through the skin, but you can affect it. And so that's kind of one of the areas that I am constantly researching is how can we affect the skin topically and um, and do it in a way in which we're sort of signaling how it should how it should perform like it did when it was much younger. Right, right. I completely, and I love that you're doing that. Keep, please keep doing it so we can get real answers instead of all the, all the garbage out there. I mean, yeah, we were, we definitely need more research in that area. Now I want to, I want to move on. I want to actually ask you because the peptide conversation really brings up this idea of, um, you know, people really are buzzing about the pH levels of our skin. And I know, I'm sure, you know, you know, with peptides, we're talking about you know, just smaller versions of amino acids and whatnot, and just, you know, proteins and all that. And there are acidic and basic components there, right? So I want to know, should you always use something like a toner, you know, um, for pH balance of your skin? Because this pH balance idea, uh, you know, it's, I'm not going to lie to you, it doesn't, it doesn't sit like that well with me. You know, I I don't I don't feel like I understand it at all, to be honest. So I would love you know, for you to. People are really kind of obsessed with this. Yeah. So it's it's all about somehow you have to use a toner or something. And a lot of this is a marketing ploy. So I'm going to come at this from a couple of different angles. So number one, even if you wash your face with, by the way, pH varies. You know, you yeah. a baby might have a different pH than an adult. And some adults have different pHs. It, it, it depends on all kinds of things. So everybody is obsessed with, you know, you want to get your skin to 4.5 to 5.5 acid balanced. Even if you used something to clean your skin that left it maybe more acidic or more alkaline or whatever, in about 20 minutes, it goes back to its natural pH one way or the other. Okay. That's just the way it is. So you don't need a toner to do that. Now, the reason that toners got to be popular, this is a marketing ploy at one time, there probably was a decent use for a toner because let's go back to the days where people have access to things like lye soap. Maybe if you were, you know, had a lot of money, you could buy Castile soap. But I even remember when my mother was a little girl back, she was born in 1910. And she said that my grandmother used to send her to the store with like a dime and she'd come home with a bag of lye soap. So you wash your skin with that. And it leaves this scummy feel on it. So people would take rose water or vinegar or witch hazel, and they'd go over their skin to get rid of that. So you're removing that leftover scummy feel. Secondly, when you get in, when we got into like the 1920s and we got the cosmetic product, this was like a real breakthrough, but you still have it around today, but you know, something like Pond's cold cream. Yeah. So what women would do is they'd put Pond's cold cream on their face, they tissue it off, left a greasy film, and they'd powder over it. So it would hold the powder on, and then they'd put red lipstick on. That was the flapper look. And then when you came home at night, 
you would put more cold cream on to take it off. You tissue it off, but of course you're going to have a greasy afterfill. So what did you do? You had to take something like witch hazel or vinegar or rose water to get rid of that. And, and that was considered though to be better than soap because it didn't dry the skin out as much. And then finally, when yeah. you got into sort of the Estee Lauder era, because remember before Estee Lauder, products were in department stores. She put the first products in department stores. Yeah. And there was this, this movement toward cleanse, tone, moisturize. And even today, think about that really popular product, Clinique, the three-step. Yeah. You yeah. know, you, you cleanse with the, with the little soap bar, you use the toner afterwards, and then you put on the dramatically different moisturizing, the yellow lotion. Um, now, so there's really not a reason to use a toner because today, unless you're using some type of cleanser that doesn't really clean your skin and leaves behind a lot of residue, there's no reason to do that. Yes, and, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, so you're it's just it's it's not now. If you're using something, a toner that you're going to leave on the skin that maybe is for the purpose like it has glycolic in it, it has a, more of a medicinal purpose. Um, yeah. you know, that that's that's a possibility, but there is no reason to actually use a toner if your skin is getting, you know, is is being cleansed properly. That's so interesting. And I love that you really took it back to the history of it because that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, toners, you know, for me, you're right. When I had acne, I remember the Clinique three-step thing and it was actually helpful for me because I always had residue on my face from sports or something. It had salicylic in it, which was helpful for acne. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Wow. Okay. So toners, not really needed. (laughs) Not really needed. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So now let's, you know, keep it on acne and let's talk about spot treatment. So what about spot treating acne? Do we need to do that? So once you have an acne lesion, it's the end of the process. What you want to do is you want to prevent those, those, that, those processes that go into the acne. And so Again, you, you know, you could maybe get rid of it, maybe make it a little less red or dry it up a little faster or something like that. But the bottom line is you don't want to break out. You don't ever want to break out. You want to prevent it. You, there's no cure for acne, but you can get complete total clearing. You can manage it and not break out. So again, once you have an acne lesion, it's the end of the process. It's already, it's it, the follicle. There's a leak in the follicle. More the material has gone to the outside, the dead cells and the bacteria and the inflammatory byproduct. It's creating an inflammatory process and you end up with some type of a lesion. That's the end of the process. You want to keep it from happening. So spot treatment doesn't work. And to prevent acne, you have to do something every single day, every single day. I'm a two-time Accutane failure. I have skin that's I never break out. My skin is always flawless. But if I didn't do what I do every single day, then I would break out. It might take a few days, but I would start breaking out. So you want to prevent that process. And I do that with a skincare management system. And I do that with with duality. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense because you know, uh, when I when I think about spot treatments, I'm always thinking about you know people are like, well, I have a white head and I have to do my makeup and it's looking terrible. I mean, just mm-hmm. pop one of those sticker things on that they make now. Yeah. You, yeah, and it's just like, well, I don't think those things work. <laughs> the colloid patches, they can, or, like I said, you know, they can kind of maybe help with the redness a little bit or the inflammation just a little bit, but you just if you're gonna if you're not going to prevent it then you better be a really good makeup artist to cover it up yeah yeah that's the truth and you know I think this actually really is such an interesting topic that you know we're doing and the fact that we're doing this because this idea of inflammation and really really looking at the inflammasome when it comes to acne and other skin pathologies is something that the consumer you know the population of consumers for this industry really need to catch up on you know you hear words like anti-inflammatory and those kind of words now, but it's like, do you still understand what that means? Because acne, like you said, is an inflammatory process. And so what do we do, right? How do we stop the inflammation? Those are all things that I wish consumers would really, really start wondering about because that would really eliminate these kind of things like spot treatment. And, you know, after it's already formed, it doesn't make any sense. So, so that's yes, cool. you know, aging is an inflammatory process. Um, acne is an inflammatory process, rosaceous inflammatory process. Aging is is considered today by the individuals who are just really in the forefront of all of the the research on aging to be actually a disease. But we we don't think of it as a disease because, well, everybody gets it. You know, you can't prevent it. And so how can it be a disease? But the the prevailing theory is that we don't really have to age. We're going to die, but we don't have to age in the way that we think of aging in terms of a um, becoming, you know, having an average of maybe eight years or more in the elder years where you're bedridden or you're incapacitated. We don't have to age that way, but, and these are, it's all inflammatory based. So um, a lot of really interesting research going on in that area. No, I mean, I, I can imagine, I think aging is definitely across the board in medicine, a very, very interesting um, thing, because I, 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 you know, for me, as a, a physician, I think about aging um, in any way, for any organ, I think of it as a gradual depletion of your normal physiological uh, molecules, because when you really look at any kind of um, pathology related to aging that's really what's going on you either lose you're losing collagen or you're losing elastin you're decreasing production of certain proteins this is a whole process you know so that's that's serotonins are anti-aging genes all of that wow i I love this topic i think that we should do like a whole different like a whole series of this (laughs) yeah i do i yes i actually get interviewed quite a bit on uh, aging and nutrition and it's it's really it's so fascinating yeah it really is um so now okay acne i i feel like that was you know those were my really big questions for acne um my last one though really is about curing acne can you really actually cure acne i mean is it is there like a final you know i guess a finish Uh, line i wish there i wish there was a cure for acne accutane is not a cure So I like to sort of position Accutane is that it puts people in remission and meaning in remission could be, that could be months. It could be, could be years for some people, but there are how many people do we know that have been on Accutane a number of times and actually statistics for Accutane is that it really has um, 
most people, only about 50% of individuals who go on Accutane really get what you would consider to be substantial clearing. So in other words, when you go off of it, you might be really clear, but how much of it comes back? And even in the individuals that have gone on Accutane and feel that their skin is much, much better, in many cases, they still have breakouts or they still have close comedial acne. It just is their acne is not as severe, it's not as aggressive as it once was. Um, so, but the good news is you can manage it and you can get complete total clearing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's really important to understand, I think, because, um, you know, acne is such a hot topic and, and people are always, always... So I feel like so traumatized by it. You know, it's like once they once they experience acne, it's a cycle that never ends of these endless products and endless attempts. And you know, I that's very interesting to to understand that. Um now, okay, I have to ask you about retinols again and acids because you know, I am a huge fan of using, you know, my masks and anything that has um some sort of an acid that that works to exfoliate my skin. Now, one thing though, with using acids or retinols, do they actually thin your skin? And um, can you tell us about that? Well, you know, if somebody says to me, well, Jan, if I use retinoids and I use glycolic and I use, you know, azelaic and all that, won't I thin my skin? And I have a sarcastic answer. I say, I hope so. (laughs) So keep in mind that our stratum corneum that I talked about that dead layer As you get older, it gets thicker, it gets disorganized, and you don't produce those same substances. So it starts to look coarser. It doesn't have that same really radiant, vibrant, refined look. And then our dermis gets thinner. So it's 80% collagen, and it gets thinner and thinner. So we want the opposite. We want our stratum corneum to be really thin. You know, like a baby skin. You look at a teenager, look at a baby, that skin that's just so flawless and it's so refined looking. It's very thin and very compact. Never in the history of the world has an eight-year-old come home from school and said, yeah, I had a really hard day. I need a moisturizer. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's snowing outside. So, so that, that skin is just very thin and very compact. And it has lots of those hygroscopic substances. And the dermis is very thick. And when you use retinoids, when you use glycolic, when you use these various acids, they actually thin and compact the stratum corneum and they thicken the dermis. In fact, the right retinoid will thicken the dermis up to twice as much. And not only that, but using the right retinoid will actually correct instructions coming from your DNA. So the reason that we see aging changes and we talk about, you know, most of the damage you're going to see in your lifetime happened before the age 10, got programmed into your skin. What that really means is, is that those instructions that your body sends out are compromised. And it's the only instructions that your body looks at. So it doesn't matter whether you have a sunburn or whether you're, you know, trying to um, repair a broken bone or a hangnail. Yeah. How you do that is dependent on those instructions and the right retinoid actually corrects instructions coming from your DNA. I love that. I love that you put it that way. And that's, that's something that I think um, definitely, definitely is 
very interesting to me, uh, you know, on a genetics level, because I know a lot of people are like, you know, I have acne because of genetics. I have acne because of this. My DNA is already flawed, you know, and I, and I always talk, I just, I just wonder, you know, how do people really think about when they think about DNA damage or, you know, the things that we're talking about here, what do they really perceive? But that's very interesting. Um, what you said, I, I really want to know, um, one thing though, as far as, um, you know, moisturizers because you had brought up you know little kids don't need moisturizers now do we need some sort of an oil in our moisturizing routine I mean what kind of moisturizer should we really be using and how do oils really play in there well you know really when we when we think of moisturizers in a traditional sense you think about something that lubricates the skin and provides barrier function I mean, Vaseline does that. Now, not, I'm not say, saying we go out and use Vaseline. There's lots of products to do that. So really what I want to see in a product is not just something that is going to provide the sort of lubrication, but that is going to actually have technology that's going to affect the skin. So the question that I have everyone ask themselves, or if you're, if you're going to a skincare provider, what they should be asking you Exactly yeah. like this is if there was something you could change or improve about your skin, what would it be? Now, most people will give you the number one concern. Maybe it's brown spots. Maybe it is large pores or it's acne. Um, but if you ask somebody, well, what else would you like to change or improve? Typically, you're going to get three or four different concerns. I call that your runway. Mm. And the idea in using any product is that you want to address every one of those concerns. I always say. I don't need another product. I want a solution. So it's about solutions and think about how you'd feel about your skin if you could address every one of those concerns. So generally people buy products because they see something that resonates about it. Oh, this product makes your skin feel so wonderful. Oh, this product is going to increase the moisture content. But in terms of whether or not your skin is going to look absolutely flawless and fresh and, and glowing and, and plump and radiant, that is going to be about addressing every one of those concerns. And so just because something is a, quote, moisturizer doesn't mean that it can't have technology in it that doesn't just provide barrier function, but actually is able to, uh, to, to address the, 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 the runway, so to speak. And you cannot have everything in one product. That's another skincare myth. <laughs> and we'd love to because we'd love to think, oh, we just, you know, the marketing ploy is that you use this one product and it's got retinoids in it and it's got glycolic in it and it has lipoic acid and it has all of these different ingredients and that's all you need to do is one product. Well, number one, when I'm developing a product, mathematically, I can only work with 100%. It can't yeah. add up to 125. <laughs> it can't add up to 150. And my first 50% is water because you can't bake a cake without liquid. Even though there's products that are coming out of Korea, they call them waterless products. You have to have certain things have to be solubilized. Mm -hmm. So my other 50%, I have to have binders and I have to have emollients and I have to have stabilizers because you don't want to open up the product and it's just this, it's just this mess. It's all separated. And and I also, then I, if I start putting in certain actives and maybe I need 12% of something and 5% of something and 3% of something, and then all of a sudden I've run out of room. So yeah. I could just put in less 
and not have a product that's really efficacious. And I could still charge you just as much, if not more. But really, you want to separate out the product, you want to separate out your technologies into different products, because also, just because it has glycolic and a retinoid in it, doesn't make it better. Retinoids have to be at a pH of around five. Glycolic, in order to be effective, has to be at a pH for home care around 3.5. Liposide needs to be at seven. So there's also manufacturing processes. So it's very complex. It's more complex to make a skincare product that's efficacious than it is a drug. Because a drug, you're working with one ingredient. How do you get it through the FDA? You don't get it through the FDA by mixing it with green tea and everything else, because they're going to look at that one ingredient and determine, is it efficacious? What trials have you gone through? And you're going to put it with the simplest base you possibly can. With skincare, you've got, look at your ingredient list, and you have all these ingredients that may or may not counteract each other. Yeah, that's exactly. Oh my gosh, you are really speaking the truth here because this idea of mixing ingredients, I've been trying to say this, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of brands that approach me and they have these products that you're, that we're talking about here, which is an all-in-one, right? And I'm always, my first question is, how do you know that chemic, the chemistry of this works? How, how in the, you know, how in the heck are you going to combine, like, like you said, you know, you use glycolic and retinols as an example, even with natural products, how do you know that one is not canceling out the other? How do you know that the kinetics of the, you know, the, the compounds is actually, you know, beneficial. It's actually doing what it's supposed to do by the time it goes from manufacturing to bottling to on your face. That there's no, it just doesn't make any sense scientifically. So yeah, I. Exactly. And another myth is that somehow the Food and Drug Administration is somehow watching out for that. The Food and Drug Administration does not regulate skincare cosmetics. If you go to their website, there's a section in there for manufacturers. Essentially what it says is you can use any ingredient in the world in a skincare product, whether it is a drug or a cosmetic, if you don't make claims. Now there's certain 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 drugs you can't use but for example let's take glycolic acid if Mm -hmm. i talk about glycolic acid in terms of the appearance of your follicles etc and acne and all of that that's one thing if i make a claim for ichthyosis which is a dry skin disease now i'm making a drug claim and what the what the fda regulates is in terms of skincare is drug claims so i could have a glass of water and I could say, this glass of water is going to get rid of your lines and wrinkles. And the FDA will send me a warning letter and they'll say, I have to take it off the market or I have to put it through a new drug application and prove that it does that. On the other hand, I could say that glass of water is going to dramatically improve the appearance of your lines and wrinkles, which is ridiculous. But the yeah. FDA will leave me alone. Wow. So the FDA is not out there determining that what you spend your hard earned money on is actually working. They have nothing to do with that whatsoever. And there's, so essentially these claims can be ridiculous and they're, you know, infer certain things that are just not true. 
Yeah, no, I, I can I can definitely, definitely stand behind that. And, you know, I'm so glad you said that about the FDA, because I think people think that, oh, it's FDA cleared. It must be the holy grail to all of my problems. And and that's a really, really mis- big misunderstanding of the yeah, process. And they, they don't clear anything. And, um, yeah. you know, you don't. Unfortunately, it doesn't get publicized a lot when somebody gets a warning letter, like, for example, um, there are certain things that the FDA does very stringently um, have oversight on. And those are the over-the-counter drugs. Sunscreen is an over-the-counter drug. Yeah. Benzoyl peroxide is an over-the-counter drug. So, for example, with sunscreens, in terms of the actual sunscreen part of it, you can only make certain claims. You have to have a box with a certain line around it. Everybody ha- is, is limited to, this, to the same claims. And so there were some companies that got warning letters. In fact, even one product that was sold at Sephora's, which they were talking about how their sunscreen actually filtered out blue light. Well, first of all, that's a drug claim. Secondly, blue light is controversial. You know, we talk about it comes from our phones and our computers. Well, guess what? Blue light can also be helpful. And the best they've been able to determine about blue light is if you're exposed to it, excessively for something like 300 years, maybe it could be a problem. So, so those kinds of things, the FDA does have an issue with. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I feel like these other things that we get told all the time about, you know, how wonderful um, our skin is going to be. A lot of that is just strictly marketing. See, that's so, I feel like I'm finally speaking to somebody who understands what I've been banging my head against when it, when it comes to blue light, because I kid you not, I wrote a mini review and it was literally what you just said in a few sentences, but just more sentences. <laughs> it was <literally laughs> about uh, how blue light, I mean, you know, and my biggest this is my biggest problem with that was, you know, I was like, I was, I'm a millennial and we grew up with technology and had our technology plastered to our face pretty much, you know, for 30 years. And I'm pretty damn sure that did not do anything to my skin. <laughs> like, and so, you know, I, I really, I dug deep and I found exactly what you just said, which is, um, yes, blue light can be definitely beneficial under certain, you know, for certain pathologies, but it's not going to be something you need a specific SPF for. So that's, yeah, you know, for example, let's just say you had something like um, atinic keratosis, and you're going to go and get an aminoluvulenic treatment, which is something that atinic keratosis are precancerous lesions. And so aminoluvulenic acid is something that you can either do at home over a period of weeks, or you could do it in a a very short course where they're going to put it on your face and they're going to put a blue light over your face to activate it. Yeah. And instead of going, wearing it for days, you're going to have a few days of, you know, where you, you're not going to like your skin. By the same token, they're also using aminoluvulenic acid in some cases for people that have acne and using a blue light. And, ac- and blue lights are oftentimes used for acne, infrared light for aging, blue light for acne. So, you know, you go on and on. Everything, you know, you, it's, it's, it's very complex. It's, it's very hard to make these absolute statements. Absolutely. No, it's just, it is very complex. And, you know, the skin, like we said, going back to it, it's it's the most, if not one of the most complicated organs, period. There's no, I I don't care who you are, dermatologist, surgeon, you, this is a fact, you know? And so, you know, one thing I, I, I think this leads me to ask you is, um, you know, in terms of sunscreen, right? We're discussing sunscreens and this is a huge topic 
do we all need to wear sunscreens? Because there's a lot of people who have, you know, uh, darker skin tones that are like, well, we don't need to wear sunscreen because we have melanin and melanin protects us. So I want you to really talk to us about sunscreen, what we should, you know, who should be wearing it, et cetera. Everybody needs to wear sunscreen. Now it's true that if you have more melanin in your skin, the darker your skin is, the more built-in protection you have. But there are lots of people with dark skin that develop um, various skin cancers. And sometimes it's, it's not it detected as easily. And the other thing is you have got to wear sunscreens indoors. Yeah. Um, you know, they, it, it, and actually you see LA has done studies where if you are in a house and you've got, you know, nice big windows and the blinds are open and you're letting the sun in, it's kind of like a weekend on the beach that you're getting all this indirect sunlight and the UVA range of light. We don't have enough time to get into all that, but the UVA range, which kind of penetrates your skin, like an X-ray. Yeah. It goes right through 50% goes through the windshield of your car. It goes through light clothing. If you're wearing a really light t-shirt, it's like the equivalent of wearing an SPF two. So it's virtually nothing. And not only that, but it's the same intensity all year long. If you are in a snowstorm in January, you're getting the same amount of UVA light, even though it seems kind of dark outside that you are at 12 noon in August. Wow. And, yeah. it, and so a lot of the deeper changes that we see and a lot of the pigmentation and things that aging changes that we see has to do with UVA light, but you need to wear your sunscreen all the time and you yeah. need to wear it indoors. And the key is finding a sunscreen that you absolutely love to wear. And uh, one of the things that people hate about sunscreens is they, they just, they feel like they're going to make you break out. They feel greasy. They make your eyes burn on and on and on. So I make sunscreens that number one, have an oil capture system in them that have an unlimited um, ability to capture oil, but they can't capture water or actives. So if your skin is dry, it's soft and silky and glowing. And if it's oily, it's really balanced and just feels just really kind of normal and, and soft and glowing. And also you can put things with sunscreens because the best sunscreen in the world, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're actually still going to get in about two, 3% or so radiation. So you can put things with sunscreens that can actually help to kind of um, address that, that gap. And can also make it feel better on the skin and just have some really wonderful effects. That's so, I, you know, and honestly, I think you do make the best sunscreens in the world, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) Because I talk to, um, you know, all the feedback we get from our uh, episodes for the masterclass. It's, you know, the sunscreen. They just can't. Everybody is like, Jan's sunscreen is just the best. And I'm like, yes, well, you know. (laughs) <laughs> that's what happens when you have someone who is very very intelligent and knows what they're doing so yeah i think uh with sunscreen you guys heard it you know wear your sunscreen inside outside everywhere um you know and i guess to kind of wrap things up jan there are some questions i do have about um just eye care right with like the skin around the eyes um one of the biggest things and you know i've been trying to 
really kind of get into this realm of getting men to be more on board with skincare. And as you know, men really suffer from crow's feet, I think, more so than women. And so I want to ask you, do certain eye creams help with things like crow's feet? I mean, can we really, uh, you no. know, talk? <laughs> no. No? Okay. So there's kind of two types of lines and wrinkles. Yeah. So one is most of the fine lines and wrinkles that we see in textural changes have to do with sun exposure. And the yeah. other one is called dynamic muscle movement. So let's say you lived in a cave, you never had sun exposure, but you make expressions, you know, you squint and you smile and you move your eyebrows up and down. So certain muscles actually start working a lot harder than other muscles. And it creates a crease in the muscle and you put the skin over it and you see a line. So that's crow's feet. That's the parenthesis lines between the eyebrows, forehead lines. There's certain other areas of the face that are affected by dynamic muscle movement. Those are the main ones. Now you can put on all the creams you want and you can look at the advertisements and say better than Botox. That is just absolutely ridiculous because what Botox does, and I'm not, I, I should be getting a kickback for Botox, but what Botox does is Botox actually disables certain muscles that are overworking temporarily and other muscles take over. But within a matter of days, that crease is gone and it stays gone for, you know, three or four months. So that's dynamic muscle movement. You're not going to get that from if if a cream could do that, you would paralyze your entire face. We'd all be walking around looking like we had a stroke. (laughs) Bell's palsy everywhere. (laughs) Exactly. Your whole face. So, and you know, they have, there is uh, some studies going on for a topical Botox that would be done in a doctor's office. It's been going on for several years. And the fact is they can't figure out how to keep from, you know, maybe you put a little patch in an area so you don't have to use a needle, but they can't figure out how to keep it from spreading. And that's the one thing when you use the needle, it's very precise. And so you're very precisely disabling certain, you know, little muscles and you know, you can even make one eyebrow, you know, you can make your eyebrows look a little higher. There's things you can do with Botox that are kind of artistic, but um, creams aren't going to do that. Now you can soften it now underneath the eye. Yeah. I can make a huge difference there. Really? How so? So, so first of all, um, your, your, your eye rests on a fat pad goes all the way around. That fat pad is held in place by membrane skin. It's like a girdle. And so those, I can actually help to increase sort of the, the collagen in that area, making it look like it is just um, tighter and firmer and more contoured. We can decrease the appearance of dark circles because what happens is you have leaky blood vessels and that's bilirubin and verity rubin and it colors the skin underneath. And we can actually, I've got something that can get rid of that about 300 times faster, gets it out of there. We can actually, with, with retinoids, we can significantly decrease. I mean, it is, it is like, um, it's like magic being able to decrease the fine lines and wrinkles under the eye area. And we can also um, kind of temporarily make that fat pad look a little less noticeable because we can sort of um, increase circulation and decrease some of that water retention in that area. Um, So there's, you know, a lot of things that we can do for that. Interesting. I like that you mentioned uh, the use of retinoids in the eye area, because I know a lot of people are very scared of that, but you know, I think technology is definitely catching up and there are safe options, right? 
for well, you could take uh, it, you could whether it's a prescription or non-prescription now most that's a whole other story about understanding yeah. the difference between the prescription and non-prescription because the the non-prescription can actually be even stronger but um you can put them right up to the lash line it's not going to fry your eye area and you should because that's it, it makes a huge difference Wow. That's, that's really, really, I love that. I love that you clear that up because I do that. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I do it. I, yeah. when I put all on, I, I dab a little bit around my eyes and I, Hey, I can vouch for what you're saying. It it does work. You're right. Mm-hmm. Um, So, well, that was, you know, Jen, honestly, I feel like we could do this for hours and hours and hours. I know. I know. And I- I wish we would because there's just so much misinformation, but these are some of the, you know, you answered so many amazing questions that I, you know, we see everywhere, TikTok, Instagram, you name it. And I really hope everyone listening, you guys got, um, you know, just a little taste of really, you know, the truth here. And so if you like what you heard and if you have any more questions, definitely please let us know. Um, I would love to do a part two of this too, actually, um, with you, Jan, if we get some questions, because, you know, the myths never end in this industry. It's like they just keep popping up. I don't know who's creating these false claims, but they're everywhere. <laughs> so, yep. Um, you know, it's, con- it's, it's, it's constant. It never stops. I know. Um, well, thank you everyone for listening. Um, we will definitely be back next time with another topic because, um, you know, this masterclass is definitely the highlight um, for us here at Skincare Anarchy. We've been learning so much and I hope you have too. So leave us your comments, leave us your feedback. Definitely go check out, um, you know, Jan's entire product line and definitely schedule a consultation if you have any kind of concerns um and i you know i will tag everything in the concept art for this but thank you jan as always this has been uh, so thank long. you thank you everyone who's listened in because i wouldn't be here without you so thank you so much and thank you so much uh, it was a pleasure really really yeah. likewise thank you bye